Founder Stories is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. (laughs) A founder's journey has its highs and lows. It's not a linear path. Every founder is also a regular person filled with high hopes and big dreams. That middle part of their story before they reach the top is where we can catch them at their fullest potential. What we learn of their past gives us a glimpse into their future. This is Founder Stories. Our founder today is bred by resilience and persistence. And on his chosen path, through the notoriously unforgiving fashion industry, he needs both. Having celebrities wear his eponymous line is a thrill, but his real success, he says, stems from the fiercely loyal customers who love his brand. With the men's competition and a constantly changing retail landscape, the greatest currency is care and conviction. This is the story of Jason Scott. My name is Jason Scott. I'm the founder designer of a brand called Jason Scott. I grew up in Chicago, grew up in a suburb about 30 minutes north of the city. Had a pretty standard childhood, grew up playing sports. Always had a love for soccer and baseball. Grew up diehard Cubs fan, Bears fan, Blackhawks and Bulls, like anything Chicago sports related. Yeah, I have a huge love for Chicago. It's got a huge influence on me today as a designer. And I kind of take a lot of inspiration as well from growing up from things that I loved as a kid to things that I like now. I was always the kid that was either just not just like getting into trouble, but like being very mischievous. One winter, I know I wanted a snowboard because I really wanted to go snowboard because there was something really cool and exciting about it. But there was no chance my parents were just going to buy me a snowboard because I wanted to go snowboarding. So I went in our backyard and built like a little bit of a hill. And I took an old sled that we had and I took two pieces of cardboard and I basically took duct tape and I created like a man-made snowboard. I don't know how I didn't break my neck like coming off the hill because it all just kind of came apart. But like, that's the kind of stuff I did. If I wanted to do something, I couldn't just go out and buy it myself. So I would find a way to make it or always just find a way to sort of do whatever kind of random thing I was thinking or excited about. So when I was younger, I didn't really have a relationship with fashion in the obvious way. If I look back to like my soccer years, I was always tweaking things that no one else on my team was doing with like the shin guards. It's like a piece of plastic that covered your ankle. I hated that. So I remember when I got home one day, I took a pair of scissors and I cut off the shin guards and I just taped them up. And if you look at shin guards now, what every athlete is wearing, they're much smaller shin guards that don't have those ankle things. I'm not trying to take credit for that by any means. I was always never really satisfied with just the way things were out of the box or the things that you could just get as is. My creative sense was always constantly going when I was younger, but it wasn't necessarily fashion at that time. It was more of just improving things. And I think it was like the catalyst for me for starting the brand because it was always, how can I make it better for myself? When it was time to go to college for me, I had a couple options. I could go play Division Three soccer, or I could kind of realize that I'm not going to be a professional soccer player and sort of go to a, a good school and, and put soccer behind me. So I was looking at my options, and one thing I always wanted to be was a sports broadcaster. And Syracuse always had a really, really good broadcasting major and applied there, was lucky enough to get into Syracuse, and actually ended up walking onto the football team there because I grew up playing soccer, and soccer and kicking kind of translate to one another. So playing football at Syracuse was interesting because 
growing up, like I was always a diehard sports fan, but I'd never been involved in a program of that nature. When I grew up playing soccer in my hometown, our locker room was a small little room and we had like maybe 15 fans there, two of which were my parents. It wasn't like a big thing. And then going to Syracuse, you've got like 60,000 people in the Carrier Dome. It was, it was kind of surreal. I remember the first day I ran out the tunnel with the team. Like you always hear about these stories about athletes like blacking out or not knowing what's going on. It was loud as hell. To this day, I didn't hear a single thing except for my thoughts in my head, which was, don't Don't fall. fall. I never played football before. So my first day I was there, they gave me the knee pads, and I was like the idiot young, like, by the way, the smallest kid in the locker room, going up to these guys that are like six foot six and 350 pounds, look like they want to murder me, and I'm like, excuse me, how do I put these in the pants? And they would look at me and laugh, but then even as learning about like, okay, the thigh pads go here, the knee pads go there, I cut them. I played around with them, and I would always kind of maneuver stuff to make it fit me better. And then also Syracuse had a really good fashion design program that would have required about eight hours a day, which I didn't have, but that's kind of where I learned about design a little bit was from people that I met at the university that were taking design classes that piqued my interest there as well. I think some of the biggest lessons that I took away from being in a you know, school as, as big as Syracuse is how it takes multiple people to get something done. So especially you look at football, you got to have a good offensive line. You got to have a good special teams. You got to have a good defense. You got to have a good defensive line. So all these things need to work together in order to see success in a sport. And I've realized that with fashion as well. It's not just me that's responsible for the company having success. It's everyone that's a part of the company. It's my friends, my family, the people that work for me, it's everyone that's a part of this. It really does take everybody. And this idea that like companies can be successful with one person is, is crazy to me because I would have been there for any one of my teammates at any given moment during college. And I'd like to think I would do the same thing for my employees. A little different when you got fashion and football, but it's the same kind of concept where you're giving it everything that you have and you're there for each other. After college, I decided to follow a lot of my friends out to California. Never been to California when I was younger. Heard it was really, really nice. A lot of my friends at Syracuse were entertainment guys, meaning they wanted to be writers, directors, producers. And at that time in my life, I was always business-minded. I always thought I would be some sort of business type of person. So I was like, all right, what's the business side of Hollywood or of entertainment? And it was working at an agency, a talent agency. So I got a few jobs as a PA, which was a fucking nightmare. I don't recommend that for anybody. But then I got lucky enough to get a job at William Morris, worked there for about four and a half, five years. And so if I was wearing a suit and tie every day, I was much more involved with fashion, with what I was wearing every day. And I think that's where the love really started to blossom. Working at an agency is 100% like you saw on Entourage. I was Lloyd without any exaggeration. That is exactly what it's like, unfortunately. It's just crazy. It might have calmed down now with things like cell phones where assistants can record their bosses doing certain things. But when I worked there and my boss threw his Blackberry at my head and it shattered all over the wall behind me, like I just had to duck and make sure I uh, didn't get hit in the head with a Blackberry. And I also had to fix it because he wasn't very happy with it. I'm literally surrounded by people that went to Yale and Harvard and all these Ivy League schools that were way smarter than I am. And I'm the, you know, quote unquote, like dumb kid that went to Syracuse that is working in the mailroom with all these other established people. Some of the guys went to Stanford Law School. Some guys had MBAs already. Like, it was crazy. I picked up drugs. I've gone to celebrities' houses to deliver scripts when they were in nothing but their robe. It was a, it was a wild four and a half years of my life. So people always ask me, like, what did I learn the most working at the agency? And the first thing that comes to mind always is how to deal with anything at any time. And what I mean by that is when I worked at 
at William Morris, it, it was just the most irrational people at the most irrational time, meaning they would tell you to get something done that was physically impossible to do, just timing wise, but you had to do it. You couldn't say no to your boss. You couldn't say no to the client. So it was about managing expectations and, and working under stress. And I think being able to work under that condition where you can sort of calm your nerves and get something done under an immense amount of pressure, doing that really helped me be successful working in my industry now, which is fashion, because it's extremely stressful owning your own company. You know, I've always had this belief that nothing is impossible, anything can be done. And I think working at William Morris, I think helped me prove that. I had to wear a suit every single day. So this whole clean look of a tailored suit and a tie and tucked in shirt was always new for me, but I took it upon my, myself to learn about tailoring and to learn about fits. And people always thought I was this rich kid first few weeks of working there because my suits fit me. And I'd always joke with people, you know, you think I'm rich because I'm wearing a, a fancy suit. And then I'd always like open the lapel and they would see that it was H&M and they would feel like an idiot. And I kind of realized like, okay, so my boss makes like $5 million a year. He's wearing a $6,000 Brioni suit, but it doesn't fit him. So that's kind of where this whole like tailoring thing started, where it's like, you think I'm successful and wealthy because my suit fits. I'll never forget some lady on the street one day stops me and she goes, oh my God, I love your suit. Is that Tom Ford? And I look her dead in the eye and I say, I'm so sorry for what I'm about to do right now but it's not Tom Ford. And I opened the lapel and I shit you not, it was a suit that I got from Urban Outfitters of all places. She couldn't believe it. Tailoring how things fit you make all the difference. And I was always more of a casual person. So I took what I loved from the suiting world in the sense of like a tailored suit, how a suit should fit you. And I implemented those principles into casual clothing to where a t-shirt doesn't have to feel or look sloppy. You can wear sweatpants to the farmer's market and not look like an idiot. The moment that I think I realized I wanted to get into fashion, weekends, instead of like going to meet my friends, I was spending time in Nordstrom and Barney's and Saks and these stores like looking at clothes or I would go to the mall with a bunch of friends and I would get lost in the Nordstrom at the Grove because I'm looking at the labels and I'm looking at all these things and I'm analyzing all this stuff. And then one day I was in Barney's and I said to myself, I can't find anything that I love, but is it because I can't afford it? or because it doesn't exist. Now, if I can't afford it, that just means I need to make more money in that it exists, but it's just, it's a me problem. If it doesn't exist, then there's a product that can be made. There was really nothing in there that I would have wanted to buy if I could afford it. So I was like, all right, fuck it. Like, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna start a clothing line. I had no idea what I was doing. I just said to myself, I'm gonna start a clothing line. It was the single craziest thought I think I've ever had in my life. The next few days, I really thought about it. This was close to New Year's Eve. I was with six of my best friends in Chicago. We're all watching the ball drop at home. A minute before it's New Year's, I'm gonna quit my fucking job next year and I'm gonna do this. I'm back to LA, quit my job. Got a job at a restaurant at night to make ends meet. Because when I was working at William Morris, I was making 28 grand a year, maybe 30 with overtime. So I didn't have any money saved up. I got a job at a restaurant, luckily, at night. So from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., I'm in downtown LA meeting with factories, meeting with fabric, looking at stuff, learning things that, you know, I should know, but I didn't know about clothing. And then I would go to the restaurant at night. I'm having to bring out food. I'm having to take people's orders. I was an assistant GM because their logic was you dealt with irrational people at William Morris. You can deal with irrational LA customers. And that was about two years of my life, 
not knowing what I was doing during the day. And then I'd go to a job at night where I had no clue what I was doing. So I ask a lot of questions. I love to learn. So I was down in the, the, the dye house where they, where they dye all the clothes. And I would ask them questions, just like dumb things like, okay, so you dye everything at this temperature. What happens if you do it at this temperature? What if you do this temperature? What if you do this instead of this? Or what if you put a, a rock in there? I just started asking, like literally annoying the shit out of these guys probably. And the answer every time I would ask questions was, I, I don't know, no one does it that way. And it was the same thing. I go to the fabric mill and say, hey, what if you take these two yarns? Or what if you did this? I don't know, no one does it that way. And I'm thinking to myself, is no one doing it this way because it can't be done? Or is it just no one doing this way because it's kind of lazy and it's like everyone's doing the same thing? And what I realized was every brand is doing the same thing. So that kind of really surprised me and, and gave me an advantage and, and an insight to thinking, okay, if we can do things differently, maybe it's better. Maybe there's a unique way that if no one's trying to do this this way, let's give it a shot. So I got very lucky and you know, I found a factory in Peru that was willing to take my suggestions and craziness and we developed fabrics together. And that's sort of what led to where we are today. It was just as simple as not knowing how to make clothing allowed me to get to where we are today because if I would have known how to make it, I probably wouldn't have asked those questions because I would have just said, okay, this is how it must get done. So the inspiration behind Jason Scott clothing line was to create product that make people feel a certain way. I remember when I was at William Morris, that feeling I got when I put on a suit that fit me well was this feeling of success. And I always thought that casual clothing can have that same feel. You think about a guy in a t-shirt and sweatpants, your instant thought is like oversized t-shirt, baggy sweatpants, but it didn't have to be like that. So I really wanted to kind of change that perception and create products that made people feel a certain way, both men and women. Yeah, I remember I was in a cab once in New York before I launched the brand. This is when I was still working at the restaurant at night. And the cab driver was like, oh, what do you do? And I was like, ah, fuck it. I'm just going to tell this guy. So I was like, ah, oh, I've got a brand called Jason Scott. And he looks back and he goes, oh, I know that brand. And in my head, I'm like, you don't because it doesn't exist. But he just thought he knew he heard of it because it sounded like a brand that was kind of nice. So I was like, oh, cool. Like, that's a good thing. So that kind of gave me more confidence to sort of create that name. And, and I wanted something that was, you know, synonymous with me because I really wanted to put my blood, sweat and tears into it. I can't just leave Jason Scott and let it fail and start another brand. That's my name. But when you put your name on it, that's it. You get one shot, one shot to launch your name, you know, one shot to have success. And I feel like that was part of the reason that propelled me to just make sure that this always works. So the first piece of clothing I made means so much to me that it's actually about 20 feet away from where I'm sitting right now. It is awful. Color is atrocious, but I'll never toss it. I'll never give it away. I'll never throw it out. I'll never show it to anybody. Definitely means a lot to me because it brings me back to the, to that day. I'm picking out that fabric. I remember the joy when I saw it for the first time. I was like, oh yeah, these are mine. Even though I don't love the way it looks, it, it brings me back to that time of excitement. They're like a weird light blue color. They've got no branding. And it also helps me realize how far I've come as a designer, how far we've come as a business. And they, they mean a lot to me. It's kind of like, you know, it's my first jersey, in a sense, in, in, the, in the fashion world. A lot of times, like, people will ask, like, what's the hardest part of starting? And I, it's twofold. I think one of them is I started this by myself. So, obviously, like, I had full support of friends and family, but I didn't have a partner doing it. So, it was just me. And I think that's always the hardest thing to do because you're alone in it. You go home at night. You're taking the burden of all the stress 
of the company. So that's definitely one of the hardest things. The other, you know, extremely difficult part is just knowing that you can't stop, knowing that you can't quit. It was hard for me in that sense to kind of mentally think about the fact that, you know, have this sort of pre-manufactured confidence that this is going to work. This is going to work when I don't even know, you know, how I'm going to survive like the next two weeks in the beginning. I mean, there were times, you know, I was down to my last penny and I don't want to have a crazy like sob store where I was, I was like broke, broke. I come from a great family and my parents are very supportive. And if I needed a couple hundred bucks or a thousand dollars, like 100%, they were there for me, but it, you know, and I didn't want to ask them for anything either. So it was hard. Like I remember one night we had an office and I say, we, it was, it was just me. And I was going home. It was a Friday night. Supposed to have dinner with friends. I'm driving home. I get to the gas station and I pull up. I'm out of gas. I check my, like how much money's on my card. I think I had like 15 cents and I was like, oh fuck, I had no money in my car. None of my friends were in downtown LA. It was 8 p.m. Like my parents were in Chicago. Fuck, what do I do here? And pride took over. I wasn't going to call a friend and ask them for money, but I remember this thing where if you put a debit card into the gas station and you run it as credit, all that it does is it makes sure that there's something on there. So it checks if there's a penny on there. So I was able to fill up my gas tank and spend 65 bucks. The debit card was overdrafted the next day, but it didn't matter to me because it worked. And then it's trying to, you know, keep a positive outlook on things because it's just you and you've got to somehow find a way to make it work. So the first real order we got was at a trade show called Project. And I remember it because same kind of thing as always. I was like, okay, I got a, I got a clothing line. So I made a set of samples that I liked, that I felt good about. And then everyone said, you got to go to a trade show. So I figured out what trade show was. I booked it, put me in this corner booth. I knew nothing. I got there. I was by myself. I looked at other people's racks, what they were doing in their booth. Middle to end of day one, we've got no orders. People have come in and looked at it, but like no one's really come by. And these three men come in towards the end of the day and they're very nice. They didn't speak like a ton of English, so I couldn't really ask them a lot of questions. They started taking pictures of everything. And I'm like, why are they taking pictures of everything? One guy looks at me and is like, points at me and points at the garment is like, is, can I try this on? And I was like, fuck, sure, I don't care. The guy tries on the sweatshirt. All of his friends are taking pictures. They're all really liking it. He takes off his sweatshirt. Everyone at these trade shows has badges on. So it says like Jason Scott, designer, or it'll say like whatever. And it says what company they work with. So I couldn't see his badge. And then when he takes his shirt off, his badge flips and it says Barney's Japan on the thing. And I went, holy fuck, like you are the holy grail. And long story short, they loved the brand, placed an order. The first order sold out in about two weeks. We did about three orders with them in the first like month. I don't know how we got production done in time, but that was my first ever order. And that's kind of how I knew like, okay, we've got something here. From there, Scoop followed, Bloomingdale's followed. And everyone's asking me like what my delivery is what the fuck is a delivery? But I didn't say that. I'm like, well, what would you like it to be? And they're like, well, how about like uh, October, November? That's great. Like, what, uh, what terms do you offer? What terms do you usually get? And they're like, net 30. I'm like, that's awesome. I don't even know what net 30 is, but like, you can have it. And then I got to go home and Google like what net 30 is. I don't get paid until 30 days after they receive the goods. Fuck, like, wow, well, how's this going to work? Then I found a factor that would help front the cost of the goods so that way we can ship on time. But I had no factor set up. I had no receivables. I didn't even have like an invoicing system. And I think I told them a delivery, which was unrealistic, but we, we found a way to get it done. Once I started doing production, I realized 
how in over my head I actually was and I realized how far away I am from actually being successful. This is when I was also doing production in LA too to start. So I was running around downtown LA, going from place to place. I was on a little bit of a hike and I was in a cab in New York City. I think it was a trade show and I got an email from the factory in LA that the scoop order is going to be late. I was like, okay, no problem. I'll call scoop. I didn't know this, but you don't ship late to anybody and you definitely don't ship late to scoop. So I called them and they canceled the order on the phone with me in the cab. And I just like a deer in headlights. I was like, wait, what, 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 what do you mean? You're canceling the order? Like, fuck. I didn't know you could do that. The Bloomingdale's order that we did got royally fucked up because no one told me that you put zippers on after you dye the garments, not before you dye the garments. Now, anybody that's listening to this in fashion, I know, I know, but I didn't fucking know at the time. But that's kind of like saying you eat the steak after you cook it, not before. So it was the highs of we've got something and then the lows of losing all these orders and then realizing, oh, fuck, we have a long way to go. So after we got those initial orders and we had a little bit of trouble with production, I took a step back, tried to focus on finding someone that can produce for us in a larger scale because I realized me doing it the way I was doing in LA just isn't viable long-term. So I'm very got- lucky I was in the right place at the right time. I was talking to somebody and I was explaining to them how I hate the way we're doing production because it's they got a dye house, I got a cutter, I got a sewer, I got a fabric mill, and everyone's telling me that it's someone else's fault. And I said, I wish it was a place that could just help me do all this so I would, wouldn't have to do it. And the guy looks at me and goes, why don't you do full package? I looked at him, I was like, what the fuck is full package? He explains to me, and I I kid you not, like I had tears in my eyes. I was like, there's a place that will do that. It's a factory that is fully vertical. So they knit, they cut, they they sew, they dye, they do everything, and then they ship you the goods. We found a place in Peru, met with the owner, we hit it off, still very close to this day. They do a lot of work together. And from there, we started producing out of Peru, so things got a lot more serious. I moved to New York about six months after that because I realized that our product has an LA vibe, but I wanted it to be more of a Midwest East Coast vibe. Been here for about five years now. Been going really, really well. And then to this day, there's still moments when I'm, okay, this is it, smooth sailing. And then a fucking hurricane comes in and knocks your ship over and you got to find a way to get back up. The process for me to move to New York, like everything else I've done in my life, was kind of impulsive and not really thought out. I realized that New York is the mecca of fashion, so I was like, fuck it, I'm gonna go to New York. It was kind of the idea of like, I'm gonna go into the lion's den. If I can make it in New York, I can make it anywhere. But if I can't make it in New York, then there's no brand and then, you know, this isn't gonna work. Didn't really know anybody, didn't really have a whole lot going on. We had a couple of wholesale orders. So I was like, all right, fuck it, I'm gonna open up a retail store because you know, why not, right? Like, I have all this money and I have all this success, so a retail store makes a lot of sense. But I actually had zero money and zero success. I was looking for spaces, and they told me that it's going to be a two-month security deposit, which at the time, I forget how much it was. It was like 12 or 13 grand, which I didn't have. So I was trying to come up with the money, waiting for online sales to pick up, and I was quote-unquote sick for two and a half weeks as a way to lie to the landlord is why I couldn't come up with the, the security deposit because I had to wait until we had more sales or I sold more product to get the funds actually in our account. I did the build out myself. It was a 400 square foot store. I used it as my office as well. And like everything at the time, it was the dumbest thing I ever did. But looking back on it, it was epic because it gave me a chance to see customers react 
to the garments to see what they like. And retail has always been important for me. It's always been important for me to get in front of the customer. Our fabrics are things you really have to touch. We outgrew that space, moved to a, about a 2,500 square foot space in Tribeca, which was awesome. It was a flagship store for us. Our offices were downstairs. Same kind of thing though with, with COVID and everything else. We ended up closing that store down because we needed more space for our employees, which now operates as our office and our showroom. It's amazing because for me, like all the old spaces when we moved to New York, I was either in the back with no windows or in the basement with no windows. Now I finally have a office space with all of our team and we actually have windows, we have light. We always joke about it. It's like we can actually see the outside and, and see the world. And then, you know, we're excited to get back into retail as well in the near future. Having a store in general, I feel like is a very scary endeavor for any brand, any company. Having a store in New York City is like multiplied times 100. And then having your first store in the West Village is just ludicrous. So that was definitely very, very scary. But being naive was the best thing for me. So we opened up our store. I, I didn't know anything. I never worked in retail before. I didn't know how to run a store. I remember one guy bought something one day and was like, what's your return policy? And I was like, uh... 30 days, like I just made it up on the fly because I just knew like what other companies did, but we didn't even have a return policy. For the first seven months of opening up the West Village store, I was there Monday through Monday. Like I didn't take a day off. I worked every day. I like the joke, the bathroom was like in the back corner. I like run to the bathroom real quick. Wouldn't lock the door because we couldn't afford to like lose any customers. It was fun in the sense of like looking back on it now, but I wouldn't recommend that for anybody. Every day I would go in with a smile and I would just hope people would come in and they would like the product. I mean, I remember the first month, if we didn't sell more than the rent, we were fucked. I didn't have any money in my savings account, in my bank account. We got lucky and the first month was awesome. You know, it wasn't crazy. It wasn't like, oh shit, you know, all this money coming in, but it was enough to make the rent, enough to pay for my personal rent as well. And it was fun. And, you know, slowly but surely, I hired a sales associate. From there, we, we built out this team of people that really believed in the brand and wanted to build something special. And it's been fun. And obviously, moving to the Tribeca store, I had a little bit more knowledge. I knew what was going on. I knew what to do because we had the West Village store for two years. After the West Village store was open for about a year or so, we, a lot of our customers were women buying for their husbands. A lot of our customers were women buying for themselves, buying extra small, small, mediums because they wanted to be oversized. They loved our fabric. And then guys would come to me and they would complain because their girlfriends or wives were stealing their stuff. I always thought about having a women's line, but being a guy, I wear men's clothes. I don't, I'm not that familiar with women's clothes other than just, you know, things that I see, I see and I like. But as far as the cut, the fit, I didn't want to launch women's until I felt like we had a really good footprint for men's because I wanted to launch it the right way. But it was very important not just to have a men's line, but to have a men's and a women's line and have a brand. I didn't want to be a menswear brand. I wanted to be a clothing brand that stood for a lot of things, whether, you know, it's comfort, casual, the idea that it can be dressed up, dressed down. I want our customer to take our t-shirt and wear it however he or she likes. It's been really cool to see people that have a little bit of sort of fame and notoriety fall in love with the brand. Coolest story that I have is not really anyone coming into the store. It's someone calling the store. The employee sits right in front of me and I hear the phone ring and she answers it, you know, thank you for calling Jason Scott. I assume the person says something and she just hangs up the phone. So I was like, oh, who was that? She's like, I don't know, it was the wrong numbers. It was weird. I was like, okay. So the guy calls back, same thing, like, 
I think she went and hung up on him twice. Finally, she's like, oh, hold on. And she's like, some guy on the phone sees Harrison Ford. I don't know. Do you want to take it? And I'm just like, yeah, sure. But I remember thinking to myself, like, okay, who the fuck is this, you know, jabroni going to be like, this is not Harry, whatever. Hello? And he says one word. I think he says hi. And I'm like, holy fuck, it's Harrison Ford. I didn't say that out loud. That's what I said in my head. And I gave the girl the death look of like, are you kidding me? You hung up on Harrison Ford? So anyways, I ended up talking to, to Harrison Ford, Mr. Ford, Indiana, Han, and he was the nicest guy ever. And I remember I was like, hey, man, like, I'm sorry to do this, but like, I just got to say, like, I'm a huge fucking fan of yours and I'll never forget it. He's like, well, Jason, he's like, I'm a fan of yours. I love the T-shirts that you make. And then I died for a little bit on the inside when that happened. I think I blacked out. don't remember what else he said, but it was the coolest moment you know, it means as much to me that Harrison Ford likes it as, as it does, you know, a random guy that lives in Tribeca to someone that lives in L.A. Or, or Colorado or wherever, because I just love to know that people genuinely love what we're building here. To this point, we've survived COVID, which I feel like was a huge thing for us. And we're seeing a ton of growth online right now. I just feel like we haven't even begun to scratch the surface. There's so much more I want to do with the brand. There's so many more aspects of the world I, I want to touch with our brand. There's more partnerships I want to do. Animal Rescue is a huge thing for me as I'm sitting here petting my dog, Wrigley. I always tell people I want to have success, not because I want to be rich. I want to have success because I always feel like money is an enabler and it enables you to do things. And, you know, if I could go down to Georgia and, and buy every single dog in the dog shelter and, and give them out to people for free so they're not euthanized or give our employees a raise, or I want to give our employees a bonus. I want to have a good life and, and be able to do fun things for people. I want to have my parents retire. And that's what gets me going. It's the it's the success. Like we've been fortunate enough to have a few people invest in the brand over the last couple of years. They put their faith in me by giving me their money. That's all the stuff that keeps me going and just the the potential of doing more. I'm just a kid from Chicago. I, I realize my role in the world changed the world in the sense of what if I have 50 employees and they all make 40% more than they would have made at another company, but I overpay them and those 50 employees now can have a better relationship with their husbands and wives and kids and parents and they can travel more and they can enjoy their life and they can enjoy work as opposed to, you know, people coming into the office and being unhappy. That's why I want to have success. I want to be able to do things that help people. We can really build a brand that is special, that builds a community around those values and that helps others as well, not just our own employees and understanding what I can do and what we can do and, and finding ways to just, just better people's lives. 2022 is going to be a really good year for the brand. I'm really excited and, and also a big year for me personally. I was most recently asked to be the creative director slash designer of the Jack Nicholas brand, which I'm super excited about. We've got some more stuff with Marvel coming up, which I'm really, really excited about. There's a bunch of different things that we're talking to in the soccer space that I also love soccer. So there's a few things on the table there. And I'm getting a lot of influence from this sort of like outdoor world meets casual world. And something I've kind of realized recently from a design standpoint is products and brands are usually singular when they're designed. And what I mean by that is you've got your basketball shorts, you've got your hiking shorts, you've got your work pants, you've got your airplane pants, you've got all these different things that have a singular function. Why can't you have something that you go to dinner with, with your friends in the summer, a pair of shorts, those same shorts you wear hiking upstate, those same shorts you play basketball in, 
you know, in those same shorts you wore to work? Like, why does it have to be such a singular thing? So we're, we're really working on these products and these fabrics that can be used for multi-purposes. People can kind of come into their own when they're having to create their own wardrobe from core pieces as opposed to being told what to wear. And I think there's a lot of inspiration that comes from that as well. So I'm really excited to launch these new products, some stuff in the golf world, a lot of stuff using Japanese fabrics, which I love, stuff that's durable, and then potentially a new retail store at the end of the year, and then hopefully giving everyone raises and not having to worry about uh, our bank account. Founder Stories is a production of Lola Media and is hosted by me, Mesh Lakani. Thank you to Jason Scott for sharing his story with us. For more information on Jason Scott and his clothing line, visit jasonscottclothing.com. This episode was produced and mixed by Ramsey Yunt with our senior producer, Olivia Briley. Our assistant producer is Haas Nasser. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. And of course, we appreciate you sharing this with your friends and subscribing to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. Until next time.